can join me there, John chapter 19. You'll remember that I began last week's sermon with a review of some important doctrine. In particular, we briefly looked at what is called the active and passive obedience of Christ. Though I mentioned that those are not necessarily the best terms, what they are intended to convey is essential. Active obedience is the label we have placed on Jesus' perfect life. When he was here on earth, he lived a perfect life in perfect obedience to God's law. He was obedient and perfect in his thoughts, his motives, his words, his actions. Passive obedience is a label that has been used in church history to refer to Jesus' willing death on the cross to pay for our sins. That act by Jesus was also an act of obedience to the Father. Active and passive obedience, of course, Jesus was active in his dying as well. Maybe two good ways to summarize it is he was obedient in his doing and obedient in his dying. And both of these acts of obedience by Jesus were necessary for sinners to be saved. And it is both that are imputed to the person who comes to Jesus in genuine saving faith. In other words, we are counted as if we lived the perfect life in obedience to God's law, and it is counted as if we died to pay for our sins. Jesus did both sides of the work. We did not, but what he did is imputed to those who come to him in saving faith. At the same time, something we have done was credited to him. Something we have done was imputed to Christ when he was crucified, and that is our sin. In other words, when he hung, dying on the cross, Jesus was being treated as if he had committed our sin. And what we receive as a gift is being treated as if we lived his perfect life and as well as if we have died to pay for our sins. All of that is important orthodox Christian doctrine. And so is the doctrine that I have chosen to briefly review with you this morning as part of the introduction. It's the doctrine of both the humanity and divinity of Jesus. Jesus was the perfect God-man, one person with two natures. He was fully God, is fully God, possessing the divine nature, and fully man, possessing a human nature. 100% God and 100% man. And when an individual comes to Christ, believing in him for salvation and forgiveness from their sin, that person is believing and confessing this to be true that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. But throughout church history, some have opposed these orthodox doctrines. There have been skeptics, on one hand, who have sought to deny or at least limit the deity of Christ. But on the other hand, 
Some have had a tendency to deny or at least downplay his true humanity. Now, frankly, those who are true Bible lovers, those who believe in the authority and inspiration of Scripture, I think it is that second danger that we more likely face, struggling with, de-emphasizing, or forgetting the significance of the fact that the eternal Son of God took up a true human nature and a human body. So let's talk about that error for a moment. It began early on in church history with the teaching of Gnostic philosophers. They had many erroneous teachings, but one element of Gnosticism was the belief that all matter is evil. They believed that only spirit, the immaterial part, is good, but something physical, matter, that is evil. So they said it was inconceivable that God took on a human body suffered and died in a human body because that human body is matter, it's substance. Instead, they taught that Christ only seemed to be a man. Now, that view in church history is called docetism. Docetism, it's based on a Greek word, dokeo, that means to seem, to appear. In other words, While it seemed that Christ was a man, he was instead a a kind of phantom. He was just a, a spirit, a divine spirit who occupied a human shell. So Jesus only seemed to be a man, but he was not really human. However, Scripture is clear that the eternal Son did indeed live and minister on earth in a genuine human body and that he did express genuine human nature. In fact, it was necessary, necessary that Jesus be not only 100% God, but also 100% human, which is confirmed in this verse from Hebrews. The author of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 2 verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things. In other words, take on human nature and human body. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The point of that verse has to do with the qualifications necessary to be a proper sacrifice for sin. The Old Testament pointed to the proper sacrifice. They would sacrifice a a lamb without blemish. It wasn't perfectly without blemish, but the best that they could tell, they would offer that kind of lamb. Well, that was pointing to something. The one and final sacrifice made on the cross. Christ fulfilled that. But here's the issue. To be a lamb without blemish, only God himself possesses perfect moral purity. Only God himself has that purity that's necessary to be a sacrifice without any blemish at all. No sinner could ever offer a sacrifice like that because sin has affected all mankind so that we could never be a sacrifice without blemish. We could never make a true offering of sin. And yet it is man that owes the debt. 
Because of God's justice, there was sin due to God's judgment, a debt of sin due to God's justice. And therefore, it is man who must make the sacrifice to pay for sin. How is that issue solved? The solution is God became man in Jesus, the perfect God-man. And because of that reality, he is the only one who was worthy to die as the perfect sacrifice. And Jesus, the perfect God-man, dying as a sacrifice was the only way then for God to be both holy and just and yet a Savior who justifies sinners. Listen to how the Apostle Paul captures that idea in Romans 3, verse 26. For the demonstration, I say this was Jesus, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. This is how it was accomplished. God was just and the justifier in the God-man Jesus. There is a figure from church history in the 11th century, a man a philosopher, a Christian philosopher named Anselm. Let me give you a famous quote on this topic from Anselm. The debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it, so that the same person must be both man and God. Thus it was necessary for God to take manhood into the unity of his person, so that he who in his own nature ought to pay and could not should be in a person who could. The life of this one man was so sublime, so precious, that it can suffice to pay what is owing for the sins of the whole world and infinitely more. Now, I wanted to review this doctrine of the humanity of Jesus because when he was crucified, he did suffer human agony and human pain. And he died a human death, even though he was 100% God. As I mentioned, we are in John chapter 19 again today, looking at verses 28 through 30. 28 through 30. So far, after Jesus was unjustly tried in Pilate's court, we discussed the fact that Jesus was severely beaten twice and then nailed to a cross And as he hung dying, last week we saw that four soldiers around the cross who were taking care of the crucifixion, the four soldiers gambled for his clothing, and as well, five of Jesus' supporters were near the cross there, four women, including Jesus' earthly mother Mary, and a man, John, the author of this book, Jesus' cousin, John. Those five were nearby, and Jesus, seeing them, instructed John to take care of Mary from that point onward. Well, today we come to the final moments of the cross. And as we are going to see, Jesus was consciously involved all the way to the end. We're going to particularly see the evidence of his two natures here today. Number one, evidence of his human nature And number two, evidence of his divine nature. Number one, evidence of his human nature. Verse 28, 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, let's stop there, John's choice of the verb here is translated various ways. It's translated, as I read it, accomplished. You may have a translation that says finished or fulfilled. It is the Greek verb teleo, T-E-L-E-O. It's a verb that more precisely means to complete. Jesus is going to use it again in a moment in verse 30 where it's translated, it is finished. But it means to complete something. So while hanging there on the cross, Jesus knew that his work, which was all part of the Father's redemptive plan, his suffering had been completed. It had finally come to an end. And that meant that he knew as well that it was time for him to die. So now that the Necessary suffering to save his people had been accomplished. Jesus expressed something that was his experience due to being fully man. Verse 28 continues, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Now, think back to to the discussion of his beatings. We didn't find any record of Jesus complaining, saying something during those beatings, When he was nailed to the cross, we don't have a record of Jesus saying anything. But once he was done suffering the infinite spiritual torment of of God's wrath, his anger against sin, Jesus finally did cry out due to his physical human anguish. This cry confirms his humanity. In his human body, Jesus experienced the genuine, severe thirst that a true human would suffer. Charles Spurgeon comments this way, Jesus was proved to be really man because he suffered the pains which belong to manhood. Angels cannot suffer thirst. A mere phantom, as some have called him, could not suffer in this fashion, but he really suffered the pangs of flesh and blood. And we should not be surprised that this would be part of the suffering on the cross, thirst. Just think about it. Jesus had suffered a great loss of fluids already from those two beatings. The shock to his entire system just being nailed to the cross would have ended up causing a a fever that would completely rack his body. Mix in the fact that he's hanging on a cross under the hot sun, the daytime sun that's associated with that region. Of course, the expected result of all of that would be the torture of severe dehydration. Death by crucifixion inevitably involved that torment. So yes, Jesus was genuinely, severely thirsty. And because of his cry, the soldiers were ready to give Jesus something to sip on. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there. A couple of things to know about this wine First, it's not to be confused with another wine that is mentioned in Mark chapter 15, verse 23. It's wine mixed with myrrh. There, I'll read it for us. Mark 15, 23. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, 
They mean some people maybe along the way when he was carrying the cross beam or someone carrying it in his place as he stumbled toward the place of crucifixion. It sounds like it, maybe somebody in the crowd felt sorry for him, reached out and gave him some wine mixed with myrrh, but Mark 15, 23 says, but he did not take it. That particular wine was meant to be a sedative to dull the agony so that a victim who was being crucified would not struggle as much <clears throat> while nailed to the cross. But Jesus refused to drink it. Why? He had another cup he was going to drink. He was resolved to drink the cup of suffering that the Father had designed for him. Scripture presents the, the crucifixion that way, his death. It's the cup of suffering. It's the cup of the Father's wrath against sin. Jesus was going to, was resolved to experience that in the fullest sense without any of his senses dulled. So he said no to that one. Second, not only was this wine, though, at the cross, not to be a sedative, meant to be a sedative to ease his suffering, the soldiers were giving it to crucifixion victims for the opposite reason. It was just enough liquid that could prolong life and therefore prolong the pain and the agony of the victim. Specifically, it was a vinegar wine, which was a cheap sour wine that was commonly consumed by soldiers. So that is what the soldiers would give to victims, crucifixion victims for their thirst. As I said, just enough liquid to keep them alive and struggling. Notice that John points out that Jesus' cry, though, was the fulfillment of Scripture. That phrase connects with the cry. So that Scripture is fulfilled, he cried out, I'm thirsty. What Old Testament passage is that? Well, it's hard to say for sure. It's not completely obvious. Some say it's a portion from that Messianic psalm that we looked at last week, Psalm 22. David wrote that psalm when he was suffering himself, but under the inspiration of the Spirit, he chose phrases that that were going to be fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus centuries later. We call that a Messianic psalm. It pointed toward the Messiah. I read verse 15 last week, and here is verse 15 of Psalm 22. It says, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. That is a picture of thirst. Some have said that it might be referring to that here in our text, but more likely it's a reference to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, also written by David. Psalm 69 has has also been quoted twice already in the Gospel of John. David wrote this psalm when he was suffering, surrounded by enemies even. But this psalm also accurately foretold the physical and emotional suffering that Jesus would endure on the cross. In particular, listen to Psalm 69, verse 21. It says this, And for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. The Greek translation of that verse in the Septuagint uses the same Greek term that we find in our text today, translated sour wine or vinegar wine. But regardless of the Old Testament passage referred to, this cry was not just manipulative drama on Jesus' part. It was real, real severe thirst. 
Verse 29 goes on to say, So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. The use of a sponge is also reported in Mark's version, Mark 15, verse 36. It says someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, a stalk, and gave him a drink. However, only John tells us that it was hyssop, a branch of hyssop. Hyssop is a little plant, has a blossom on the end that was perfect for dipping in something and then sprinkling that liquid on something else. For that reason, we find it regularly used in the Old Testament that way. For example, uh, the night of the first Passover in Egypt when God was going to deliver his people from bondage, he told them to put blood on the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over them. Here's how that was told to them in Exodus 12, verse 22. God says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin, and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. We find it there. Also, you can follow this in the Old Testament, that Israel's priest would commonly use this plant to sprinkle blood from the uh, atoning sacrifices in the temple. Even David mentions it in his psalm of confession and repentance, Psalm 51, verse 7, when he's pouring out his heart to God in Psalm 51 because of his sin with Bathsheba. This is his prayer to God, Psalm 51, verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So hyssop is is connected to the blood is connected to cleansing, but a question arises, how is it possible to use a little, a little sprig of hyssop that, to hold a sponge and give Jesus the sour wine? The end of that plant is small, it's very fragile, it, it's very light, it couldn't support a, a sponge soaked in wine all by itself. Well, you have to understand that the whole stalk of hyssop would have been used. And the little sprig at the end, the little sprig was just on the end of the hyssop stalk. And that sprig would form a little little place to cradle the sponge. They would lift that to Jesus' lips. Something you need to know about Roman crosses is probably helpful. We get our picture in our mind sometimes from movies we've seen of this tall cross and Jesus lifted up high and People looking up to him, in reality, history tells us that the victim was not hanging very far from the ground. In fact, Roman soldiers needed to raise the sponge barely above their own heads to give him something. But nevertheless, however the drink reached him, the point is Jesus completed his part in all that God asked him to do. He's fulfilling scripture here, and as he did, he commented on the physical human torment he was experiencing. It was real evidence of his human nature. Number two, we see now in verse 30 evidence of his divine nature. The self-knowledge of what was happening prompted Jesus to cry out once more. Verse 30, therefore, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Mark 15 verse 37 captures this moment, but Mark doesn't give us the content of the cry. It just says in Mark 15 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. 
But John is writing this. John was there near the cross, near enough to hear it. And in the Greek text, this cry is from the term teleo, T-E-L-E-O, teleo. We mentioned it earlier. Translated accomplished before. It can be translated finished. It's just one word the way Jesus said it, to telestai. comes from that Greek term, to telestai. It is finished. That English translation is okay. It is finished. The only negative is it only captures part of the nuance of the meaning, and that is the focus on completion, and that is accurate. Jesus' earthly mission was done. But we need to understand there's, there's this, this nuance as well in this term. It was not a cry of defeat. It was not just a, a mere announcement that death was imminent. No, it's a cry of victory. It is finished. It's accomplished. Jesus used this term back in John 17 when he was praying to the Father. In John 17 verse 4, he He mentions his work as if it's already done, and he uses this term, John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, that term. And now, on the very brink of his death, Jesus used the term again to clearly proclaim that his work had indeed been accomplished. But what work? We can answer that in more than one way. First of all, certainly the sufferings were completed. He completed the sufferings necessarily associated with dying this way, his atoning death for our sin. No more would Jesus experience the terrible pain of the scourging and the crucifixion itself. No more would he endure the ridicule of the people or the Roman soldiers, the mocking from the Jewish priest. Worst of all, No more would he suffer this agony, the agony of divine wrath and separation from his father. The sufferings were completed. Second, we could say that he accomplished and fulfilled all the prophecies associated with his life and his death. Think back over all the events that we've already talked about and how they were prophesied. Some we've mentioned along the way in John. John doesn't mention all of them. Some of these are, are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But here, here's, a, here's a list, a, a summary list, things that happened that were prophesied. His betrayal by a friend, meaning Judas, the disciples forsaking him, the false accusations, his formal acquittal. His being numbered with transgressors in his death, crucified between the two thieves, the crucifixion itself, the mocking of the onlookers, the taunts about his failure to save himself, that's recorded elsewhere. People walking there on the road would mock him and tell him to save himself. The soldiers gambling for his clothing, as we saw last time, his prayer for his enemies while he was on the cross. His being forsaken of God was prophesied, his cry of thirst, his yielding up his spirit into the Father's hand, the preservation of his bones from being broken. We'll see that next time. Also, we'll see his burial in a rich man's tomb, all of that prophesied in Scripture. All of these foretold, all of that proof of the divine inspiration of Scripture, it was accomplished 
And third and most important, there now remained nothing for Jesus to do in terms of his atoning work, his atoning death. The work of satisfying God's wrath, the work of saving his people from the bondage of their sin. Back in John 10, when he referred to himself as the good shepherd, he said, he promised that he would do this. He promised that as a good shepherd, he would lay down his life for his sheep. And now that promise is accomplished. He came to do it. He said he would do it. He did it. Jesus finished his saving work completely. And he didn't just finish paying for some of our sins. People do struggle with that idea. What about my sins before I came to Christ? What about the sins before I was baptized? What about the sins after I was baptized? What about the sins that I forget to confess and so forth? Jesus paid for all of them. It's not the Roman Catholic view. They teach that Jesus' death atoned for sins that were committed before being baptized. Some unbiblical Protestant churches give the idea that it, he only died for those sins we committed before we believed or He only died for those sins that we remember to confess. All those views are wrong and they have something in common. They say that there's something we must do still to pay for sins we've recently committed or sins that we're going to commit in the future. What about them? More specifically, the Roman Catholic doctrines of penance and the mass rely on an erroneous, incomplete view of Christ's atonement on the cross. For Roman Catholics, the the mass provides this ongoing sacrifice of Christ's blood even today, which means that the atoning sufferings of Jesus are not finished, even though he said they were. Moreover, Rome teaches that you must perform penance. What is penance? Acts of penance. That means punishments, punishments prescribed by a priest in order to be fully restored to God's favor from present sins that you commit. Go do this, go do that, go say this, go say that. Again, that's just saying that Christ's atoning death did not complete the work of forgiveness, even though he said it did. Other unbiblical non-Catholics, unbiblical Protestants Emphasize this idea of still needing to ritually confess recent sins or you won't be forgiven of them. They even go so far as to say, and some, that if you die with some unconfessed sins, then you are not saved. What a way to live. Again, the problem with these views is the same. Jesus claimed it is finished. When his work was done on the cross, Jesus paid the debt of all the sins of his people, past, present, and future, whether you've confessed them or not. No wonder we love to sing these words from that great hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We don't sing, Jesus paid for all the sins before I got saved. Jesus paid for the sins that I remember to confess. Jesus paid 
for the sins before I was baptized and so forth. No, he paid it all. There was nothing more that needed to be done. Nothing needs to be added to it. That's why this was not just an announcement. It was a shout of triumph. It is finished is the proclamation of a victor. And since his mission was finished, the time had come for Christ to actively surrender his life. Therefore, look at verse 30. It says, and he bowed his head. Evidently, throughout the ordeal up until this point, because John had been watching. Evidently, Jesus had held his head up, a posture of sovereign control. But now, only at the end, he assumed a different posture. He bowed his head. The same word is used differently from the lips of Jesus back in Matthew 8, verse 20. A man came to Jesus saying, I'm going to follow you. And you remember those famous words from Jesus, you know, basically telling him, you better think twice about that. Here's full disclosure. Matthew 8, 20. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Same term. In a sense, on the cross, he finally had a place to lay his head. Richard Phillips puts it poetically. Jesus peaceably placed his head into the Father's embrace. Not only that, verse 30 says, and he gave up his spirit Luke records it this way, a little more information. Luke 23, verse 46, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Keep in mind what we learn from history about normal crucifixions. They would last not only for several hours, but also many times several days of agony. But having endured the torment of God's wrath for the sins of of his people, having accomplished the work, it was enough, Jesus laid down his own life. So the point is that he voluntarily chose to surrender his life by a conscious act of his own sovereign will at the time of his choosing. No one took his life from him. He handed it over, which fits with what he's already said back in John 10. I've read 17 and 18 before. I'll read them again today. John 10, 17. I laid down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus was exercising his divine authority by choosing to take his last breath. You and I can't do that. Other crucifixion victims victims didn't do that. What a moment that was. Crying out, it's finished. Into your hands, Father, I, I commit my spirit. Breathing his last, bowing his head. You know how awesome a moment it was? Matthew's gospel tells us something. That moment was so awesome that the centurion 
And the other soldiers supervising the cross exclaimed this. And again, other, the other accounts also tell us that there were earthquakes going on, darkness. Matthew 27, 54, now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, including what he just said, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. No doubt the cross was the monumental event in God's redemptive plan. It was there that Jesus did indeed bear the sins of his people on his body. It was there that he did indeed bear God's curse for those sins. This is so important that the Apostle Paul even ranks it as being of first importance. Listen to what he tells the Corinthians in the letter he wrote, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Let me leave you with some observations. I've got two related to the thirst that he experienced, and then one related to our faith. Here are two observations concerning the torment of the Lord's thirst. Couldn't help but think of these. First of all, it's an example of of irony again. I mean, John has, has pointed out irony all along the way. He's noted many ironies throughout the account of of the Lord's arrest, his trial, his crucifixion. But here's another one. How's it ironic? This cry of thirst from the Savior? Because he's the one who said that he is the fountain of life. Bruce Milne summarizes it. The one who offered living water, which would mean never thirsting again, The one who cried on the last day of the feast, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He now cries, I am thirsty. What irony. But it made me think of something else too, this thirst. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he was tasting hell for us. Thirst is a taste of hell. One of the aspects of suffering in hell will be That those who reject Christ will have removed from them every form of comfort that we could come up with. Spurgeon said, man refused to obey his creator. The time will come when the creator will refuse to comfort man. It's pictured in the parable that Jesus told about Lazarus and the, and the rich man. You remember that parable in Luke 16. The rich man had lived this selfish, greedy, and ungodly life, and he died, and he went to, to, to the place of torment and hell. And he was burning with thirst, the parable tells us, so much so that the man cried out. Here's what he said, Luke 16, 24. Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But the, ter- the parable says that the, the request was denied because there is this gulf, impassable gulf between heaven and hell. 
Listen, God himself has ordained the torment to be that way for hell, for all those who perish in their sins. That torment is going to include not only darkness and separation from God, but unbearable thirst. So when we think about Jesus enduring hell in our place, in a sense, on the cross, so that we don't have to experience it's right, in a sense, to, to say that he endured all that hell will be. He tasted it as far as separation from the Father and even thirst. For God's people, he endured that so that we could be saved from it. Another observation, though, not related to the thirst, it's just one observation concerning the content of our faith. Scripture is clear that salvation is not a joint effort of God and man working together somehow. It's entirely a work of God's grace. But it is appropriated by faith. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. But the question is, what are we having faith in? Here's one succinct way to summarize the answer. When we say that we have faith in Jesus Christ, we mean that we are relying on, resting in the finished work that he completed on the cross. We give up trusting in anything about ourselves and anything that we can do or be. We turn from that and we rely on our only hope, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You see, man-made religions say something different than that. It doesn't matter which one you pick. You can put them all in one column. They're all the same at the end of the day. They're telling people they have to finish the necessary work themselves. Go out and do something. Go out and be something. Jesus says, I've already done it all. Receive my finished work. We rest in what he has completed, knowing that it's all that was needed to be done for us to be saved. And when we rest in what Jesus has done, we never, ever need to fear the punishment for our sins. We never need to worry that somehow God's law is going to condemn us in the end. So when it comes for comfort and assurance for your own heart, don't look at yourself. Don't look at your own works. Looking at our own works, all we're going to see are works that are imperfect, works that are unfinished. But looking at Jesus' dying work on the cross, we know that our salvation is finished by a perfect offering up of the once-for-all sacrifice that truly frees us from our sin. As we saw in our text, Jesus spoke that word to Telestai. He was declaring that salvation for his people had been fully and eternally paid for and accomplished. Therefore, when he was raised from the dead and ascended back to heaven, he sat down at the throne of majesty on high. A picture of completion, 
Hebrews says this, Hebrews 10, 12, and 14. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We'll never have the peace of assurance for our souls as long as we keep looking to something in ourselves to either attain salvation or to keep ourselves saved. Don't look at something you have done. Don't look at something you are doing. Don't look at something you might be able to do. The gospel call is this. Come to Jesus for rest. Come to Jesus for the satisfying of your spiritual thirst. I've already said it. Jesus calls people to himself that way. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He says it again this way in John 4, 14. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. In fact, it's the very invitation Scripture gives us at the very end of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It only leaves one question. Do you accept the necessity of Jesus' death and that alone for your salvation. You rest in that. There is no other way to be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the glimpse of the final moments of the great atoning work of redemption on the cross. Lord, though it happened nearly 2,000 years ago, we are still gripped by it today. Lord, may those of us who know you, who have come to that place of resting in you and what you have done for us, may we never get over this. May we be eternally grateful for it. And out of the joy and knowledge of that, serve you with all of our hearts. Father, I pray for anyone here who's never come to that place of resignation, that place of giving up any other kind of trust in something else. I pray you'd open their hearts that they might receive Christ, relying on his work, his finished work, and resting in that. In our Savior's name, amen.